0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, good morning, Ecclesia. Good to see you guys this morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah, right on. Um, So my name is Wayne Brown. I get the privilege to be the campus pastor at Ecclesia here on the west side, and it is so much fun. Um, This is probably going to be the most direct sermon intro ever, and I'm just going to go right into it. So I heard uh, this quote on Saturday, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about why it shook me, but I want to go to this quote, and it is this, that the church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. Uh, So I heard this on Saturday. Uh, Anybody, just curious, anybody after hearing that already know who said that? Anybody know? Uh, Because I didn't. Uh, It actually is from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, And if you've been here over the past few weeks, we've actually been in a series where we're looking back on uh, theologians and people from the past uh, and how they 've shaped, and this is a little bit more recent. Um, and what 's interesting is Chris actually did this sermon on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. there 's a good picture of him. he 's a handsome guy, you can see. Um, we should maybe he 's more handsome than I am. Maybe we should leave him up for a little bit longer. Um, but Chris actually did this sermon uh, downtown last weekend, and uh, he actually is in the Bahamas uh, because we 've got some friends there that have some needs. And so because we're a church that says we're gonna be for others and we're gonna find places where we can help and serve, Uh, He's actually there this weekend uh, and he's doing some teaching so that their team and their pastors don't have to carry that burden while they're also trying to care for others. Uh, And it really was born out of uh, what he remembered experiencing in Harvey of how do we care for people and then preach on top of that. So he's busy doing that and then recruiting other friends to go and uh, provide some teaching there so that their staff doesn't have to do that. That's who we are. That's what we do, right? Uh, That line is something we use to describe ourselves, that we are Houston's holistic, missional Christian community. That's a lot of words, I'm not going to unpack all of those, but when we talk about missional, uh, it's that, that the church doesn't exist for herself, for ourselves. We are here for the world. We're here to serve others. Uh, it's what drew me to Ecclesia. So it's, it's kind of ironic that uh, Chris isn't here to do that sermon because he's doing uh, what we say we're going to do. And if you're here and sometimes it feels like, man, we're going to Mexico or we're doing all this stuff in different places in Africa, it's because of that, that we are a church that says we are here for others and we're here to serve. And so if it feels like whiplash, get ready. Like, you know, brace yourself because that's not going anywhere. We're going to continue to find ways to help regardless of where we are. So I have a confession. If I'm being totally 100% honest until Saturday, and I love that sound, by the way, like get used to that too. Um, that's the, the kids saying, amen, listen to the pastor. He knows what he's talking about, right? Um, exactly. Yes. So uh, if I'm being totally honest, up until a week ago, I knew Dietrich Bonhoeffer's name. Uh, I knew that he wrote a couple books and I knew that he uh, lived in Germany around the time of the Nazi regime and that he was somehow connected to, like a conspiracy to kill Hitler, and that's it. So uh, here, fast forward seven days later, and I'm giving you a sermon on the guy, okay? So I'm by no means uh, an expert, right? This is, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, what I got on uh, a a movie, Um, a bunch of quotes, read some of his books, and uh, if I'm being really honest, what I read on Wikipedia, so. um, Not claiming to be an expert, but there are some things that I think I just want to share with you guys uh, that has really impacted me, and I'm really grateful to learn here's a guy that really shaped our church and was really in- influential in making our church who we are, that we, we actually shape a lot of things based on what he said. So um, uh, one of the things you need to know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, is that he was born into a large family, uh, that he was child number seven of eight. Uh, he had a twin sister. Uh, and was not, there's his twin sister actually. So he's the one with the blonde hair. Um, So uh, yeah, he was born into a large family, not a Christian family. uh, And he was a classically trained pianist. He was a really great musician, Uh, and grew up playing uh, pieces from people like Schubert. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't listen to a lot of Schubert in my life. So uh, we've got a very talented executive pastor, Brian Mann, who is trained as a filmmaker. Uh, And so now he's our executive pastor, which makes total sense, you know. Um, So he's actually going to play some Schubert for us uh, so that you can hear a little bit about, hey, what, what what would that have sounded like? What would Bonhoeffer have actually played? So Brian continues to play. I'll just tell you a little bit more about uh, Dietrich's life with that in the background. Um, So at the age of 14, uh, Dietrich came to his family that again was not a Christian family and announced to them that he was going to become a pastor and a theologian. Now, I don't know about you, but I said a lot of things when I was 14 and usually it was met with, oh, we'll just see how that turns out, right? Um, And so I wonder if his family said the same thing, especially with that, but man, this guy was a force of a human being, incredibly bright, incredibly intelligent, and incredibly driven. So much so so that by the time he was 21 in 1927, he graduated uh, with not only his bachelor's, not only his master's, but his PhD in theology, right? At 21, makes me ask, what am I doing with my life, right? Like um, what's happening there? So, and it's so funny that he was so fast at this he could not be ordained as a minister until he was 25. So he's got four years, like, what do I do with this PhD? So he did a lot of traveling. Uh, he uh, found an opportunity to, to further his studies. And so he ended up moving to New York and got a position with Union Theological Seminary where he, he taught and also did some more studies. Uh, it was there at this seminary that he got connected to another classmate who was a part of an African American congregation in Harlem and just fell in love with that community and fell in love with the music, especially too. Uh, So he was known for uh, finding recordings of some of those African-American spirituals that they would sing, and he took them back to Germany, and he would often have people over in his home and just play those uh, and just share that. He absolutely loved it. But it really shaped the way that his theology formed uh, because he began to see Uh, religion, Christianity uh, from a completely different light and looked at it as like, what does it look like to be a people that are oppressed and how do we actually work towards liberation and freedom for all people? And it's a huge reason why he actually ended up opposing the Nazi regime in Germany was that that time in his life, it was very formative. Uh, He eventually returned to Germany in 1931 um, and he was ordained and was a pastor and he taught in seminaries and did a few different things. And in 1933, when uh, the Nazi uh, party came to power, two days later, he got on the radio and actually gave a speech and an address that just raised concerns and opposed uh, some of the ideas the Nazi regime was throwing out. And mid-sentence, it mysteriously got cut off, uh, that he was taken off the air. Uh, Now, there's some... If Wikipedia is to be, to be believed, um, <laughs> there's some uh, debate as to whether or not the Nazi party uh, was responsible or if it was a technical glitch. Um, but either way, he established himself early on as an enemy of the Nazi party uh, and was flagged and watched ever, uh, ever since then. Um, at some point, he ended up uh, returning to the U.S. briefly when things got really heated and he had to check in with uh, the German police And in 1939, after one month being back in the U.S., he made a decision that he needed to go back. Uh, I'll share more about what he said there, but he knew at that point he would likely, uh, that this probably isn't gonna end well for him. And then ultimately he was uh, tried, sentenced to a uh, prison camp And on April 8th of 1945, he was executed as an enemy of the state because he was associated with people who had conspired to kill Hitler. Uh, There's a lot of debate also about how involved he was in that, but what's not debatable is that he knew these these people that were involved. Um, What's really interesting is two weeks after he was executed, the camp where he was being held was liberated by US forces. And a month after he was executed, uh, the war ended. Uh, So it's very interesting uh, timing. Uh, But here's a man who lived a remarkable life in just 39 years. Um, And I just want to share a few of those things that really grasped me this week as I was learning about him and his life and reading some of his readings. And one of the the most um, quoted things that he wrote is a book uh, called Life Together. Uh, And he believed that one of the best gifts was for people and particularly Christians to come together and to live in community. Uh, And this has shaped our community as well. Um, And I wanna share a a passage of scripture from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, that really highlights a lot of what he talked about. And we'll go on. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse seven, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says this, he says, each believer has received a gift that manifests the Spirit's power and presence. That gift is given for the good of the whole community. The Spirit gives one person a word of wisdom, but to the next person, the same Spirit gives a word of knowledge. Another will receive the gift of faith by the same Spirit, and still another gifts of healing, all from the one Spirit. One person is enabled by the Spirit to perform miracles, another to prophesy, while another is enabled to distinguish those prophetic spirits. The next one speaks in various kinds of unknown languages, while another is able to interpret those languages. One spirit works in all these things in each of them individually as he sees fit. And what he's saying is, hey, there's many different people coming together to make one whole thing. And if you're in this space and you feel like, I'm kind of an outcast, or I'm weird, or I've got these gifts and I'm not sure what to do with them, they absolutely belong. Because it means that you have a voice and you have a gift and you have a perspective that when you bring it together and you share it, uh, we get to do something collectively that we could not do just on our own. That what we do when we come together as a body is beautiful and it's magnificent. And he goes on and he says, just as a body is one whole made up of many different parts and all the different parts comprise the one body, so it is with the anointed. We were all ceremonially washed through one baptism, together in one body by one spirit. No matter our heritage, Jew or Greek, insider or outsider, no matter our status, oppressed or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Here's what I mean. The body is not made up of one large part, but of many different parts. Would it seem right for the foot to cry, I am not a hand, so I couldn't be part of this body. Even if it did, it wouldn't be any less joined to the body. And what about an ear? If an ear started to whining, I'm not an eye. I shouldn't be attached to this body. In all its pouting, it's still part of the body. And I love this. He says, imagine the entire body as an eye. That's just a really weird metaphor, right? Like I don't even really want to picture it. Um, How would a giant eye be able to hear? And if the entire body were an ear, how would an ear be able to smell? This is where God comes in. God has meticulously put this body together. He placed each part in the exact place to perform the exact function he wanted. If all members were a single part, where would the body be? So now many members function within the one body. Ecclesia, this is where we all get to come together. And this is where when we find opportunities to serve, uh, we're gonna go and figure out how do we leverage all our gifts together to make that happen. And it means that you get to be empowered so that when you find a need or you see something going on, like, you get to figure out how do we do that, and you get to add, tell, and invite in. Uh, we're going to tell you more about some of the work we're doing with Imelda, but uh, we're going to actually have a space where you can go and fill out needs that if there's somebody in your community or somebody you know of that has a need, uh, you can let us know what that is so we can figure out how do we do that, right? That's a part of how we get to come together, and your voice and your perspective and the people you know matter. So bring your gifts, and let's do this together. Um, So a few things that I think uh, I really learned as I um, read and watched the movies uh, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week, there's about four things I want to share. And the first is somewhat hard for me to share um, because it sounds a little funny to me, uh, but it's just this, that one of the things he teaches us is to be Christian, Um, I don't like that word sometimes because sometimes uh, I prefer to refer to myself as I follow Jesus. Um, But what he's saying is we don't need to be a fill-in-the-blank Christian, right? We don't need to be the kind of Christian that something else defines us before that. Um, And what was true is that there was a whole movement happening in Germany in his time where people described themselves as German Christians. And it's part of what opened the door uh, to some things that were really scary. I have a quote I want to share with you from a German pastor at the time. Uh, his name is Hermann Gruner. And he wrote The time is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the Helper and Redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the church of Christ. It gave me chills. Um, it's a little scary. It's something I would like to think that, hey, we're, we're past that. Um, but if I'm honest, there's some things in our culture that, uh, that are a little scary. So I don't know about you guys, if you remember back to whenever you were in school uh, and you'd go to school, first thing, what was kind of the, the morning routine? What would happen whenever you got to school? Pledge of Allegiance, yep. So teacher teacher does roll, right? And they're doing the whole Bueller, Bueller thing. And then we go right into uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. I went to a school where we also pledged allegiance to the Christian flag. Um, and then on certain days like chapel, we would also pledge allegiance to the Bible. Um, and it was interesting in this context that it was so hard to distinguish sometimes what it meant to be Christian and what it meant to be American, that in so many ways they were one and the same that the way we were taught, it was understood that if you were a Christian, you were American, and if you were American, you were Christian. And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer and so many others teach us and warn us is that at the end of the day, we're a Christian first. We're a Christian who happens to live in America. So it's a really scary thing when we say things like, oh, I'm a liberal Christian, or I'm a progressive Christian, or um, I'm a conservative Christian, or I'm a Martian Christian. You know, I haven't met anybody from another planet, although there are those folks that when we get ton talking, I'm like, I don't know exactly what planet you're from. Anybody else have that experience? Um, And, you know, it it makes me nervous when I hear candidates um, in politics say things like the Bible is my favorite book, because it makes me wonder, is there something in our culture that people know if I say things like this, it's going to get me a lot of votes? Um... And I wanna just remind us, at at the end of the day, we are first Christians who happen to live in America. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus says, if anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. What's interesting about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark wrote to a predominantly Greek and Roman audience. And what's interesting about that verse is that if you were a Roman citizen, you could not legally be crucified. That the only way you could be crucified is if you gave up and didn't claim your rights as a Roman citizen. And so part of what Mark and Jesus is saying in that context is, hey, there's something else, there's something deeper that I'm calling you to. And for us, it's the way of Jesus, It's to follow in his path. So for us, let's be Christian. Um, Another is to be curious. So something that's interesting about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is when he was living in New York and he was going to seminary, he wasn't old enough to rent a car yet. Um, So he actually talked one of his friends into loaning their 1924 Oldsmobile to him. And he talked his friends into driving to Mexico from New York City, (laughs) which is interesting, right? Because if I went home and told my wife, hey, I think we should drive to Mexico, right? She'd look at me like I was crazy, you know? Um, and this was in 1930, right? Like, not not the whole freeway system, no buckies, right? Like, what do you even do? Um, and he talked his friends into that. He was a curious person. He wanted to learn from other cultures. He traveled really well. Some of the places he visited, he went to Cuba, uh, Mexico. Uh, and even now, like, there's not many of us that actually get to go, go to Cuba. That's a hard country to get into. Uh, Italy, Ni- Libya, Denmark, Sweden. He lived in a lot of different countries as well. So he was from Germany. He lived in the U.S., but he also lived in Spain. Uh, and he also spent some time living in England, that he was a person that was curious. And one of my favorite quotes from him is this one that uh, it's about listening. Um, and I think this, this is part of what made him such a curious person. But he said, He who can no longer listen to his brother will soon no longer be listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. And in the end, there is nothing left but spiritual chatter and clerical condescension arrayed in pious words. I love this. He's a curious person. What would it look like for us to be the people that ask questions, that say, Tell me more about that. What's going on there? Um, you know, it's funny. We, we live in an interesting city. Uh, we live in a city that has more foreign consulates in it than any city in the U.S. except for New York. So we don't have to actually travel that much to interact and meet people from all over the world. What would it look like for us to be the most curious people in our city? That we went to places intentionally say, tell me more about that. What is that that you're eating? What is that, right? Um, and we ask questions. And what if we became the people instead of being so quick to judge the person that just cut us off that we'd rather just flip off on the freeway and say, I "Wonder what's going on with them? Wonder, wonder what they've suffered." Um, you know, there's some practical ways that if you're looking to travel as well, uh, we, we're going to tell you more about some Holy Land trips that are going to come up where you could actually go with some folks to Israel. Uh, there's also a trip we're taking where we're going to take some people to Mexico City and there's spots available if you want to do that. Uh, so there's chances of travel, but it's amazing. We have a city where uh, if we're just curious, you can get a lot of different cultures. Um, what would it look like for us to be curious? So two more. Uh, one thing that I think is really clear from Dietrich Bonhoeffer is uh, that there's a call to be courageous. Uh, it's interesting to me that he made a conscious choice to go back to Germany when he was safe here in the United States. Um, and I want to share a quote. Uh, it only took him about a month uh, when he was here in the U.S. to decide he had to go back. And this is a long one, so stick with me. He says, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people, right? He's looking forward to what could become and knows if he wants to be a part of it, he has to be there with people with his people. He says, Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. He says, I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. And so he made the choice to go back and it ultimately resulted in him being executed as an enemy of the state. Now, I'll be honest, when we talk about being courageous, if I'm being honest, I feel a lot of fear in my life sometimes, how about you? And so many times I think that the courageous person is the person who doesn't feel fear, but it's not true. Um, The courageous person is the person who doesn't allow their fear to keep them from doing what they believe is right and true and good, right? So, hi, I'm Wayne and I'm a coward, right? (laughs) Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the absence of self. Courage is when we find something that we care or someone that we care so much more about than ourselves that we're willing to do even what's risky or what might bring us harm because we want to see good come into the world. So if you're here and you think you're a coward because you feel fear, that's okay. Welcome to the club. But what would it look like for us to become the people who said, let's do what we know is right, and let's do what we know is good, even if it may cost us? Um, And that's the life that uh, he lived. And lastly, uh, one of the things I I learned from him is this idea to be compassionate. Uh, Now, if you haven't noticed yet, I'm a a nerd, (laughs) Um, and I love words, um, and I love to break them apart and look at them. And this word compassionate to me is very interesting because the word passion is often translated as suffering, right? When we talked about the passion of the Christ, it was his suffering. So the word compassion means to suffer with. And what, was it, what would it look like for us to be the people that suffered with others? And I think this is connected to that idea of what it means to listen to people. So Bonhoeffer's got a couple of quotes. He says, Uh, nothing that we despise in other men is inherently absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard others less in the light of what they do or don't do and more in the light of what they suffer. What would it look like for us to be the people that wonder that? What has this person been through? And maybe we ask those questions. And then one more quote, and I want to share a passage and a story, and we'll wrap up but he says, the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as, God, just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends his ear. So it is his work that we do for our brother when we learn to listen to him. I'll never forget being fresh out of seminary and recently on staff here at Ecclesia, and there was a funeral that came up. And our more seasoned pastors who had done multiple funerals before uh, were off helping other people as as they do. And so it was kind of this moment where it was like, okay, Slugger, you're up, right? Um, And it was kind of a heavy moment because it was uh, a funeral for a young man of 36 uh, who was killed in a motorcycle accident and left uh, an eight-year-old daughter behind. And so it's one of those moments where mom and dad had to bury their son and had to figure out how do we walk alongside uh, now our granddaughter and, and make this work. So I can remember having a day or two before getting in there and just trying to think, like, what do you say? You know, what? What words of hope do, we, do I have to offer? And I wish I could say I was really eloquent. Uh, I don't think I was. Uh, the one thing I remember wanting to communicate more than anything else is if, if anything, we are here together, and I have questions and I have doubts, and if anybody's asking why did God allow this to happen, uh, I would tell you I don't know. And I would tell you that if anyone has a really clear answer on that, it raises red flags for me. I don't know if I trust it. Um, but what I do know is we're all in this room together, and we're not going anywhere. That we're going to walk this path together, um, and it's because of Jesus, who Jesus is, that we're going to do this. So I'll never forget. There was a moment after everything, and you know, there's like uh, refreshments, and so people are um, kind of grieving together and interacting. And I can see this uh, this man make his way towards me. And as a pastor, you always have this moment when somebody approaches you after you've been talking of like, where's this gonna go? Because it usually goes one of two ways, right? And I'm thinking, what did I say? What did, you know, um, Trying to trying to brace myself. And uh, this man stopped me and he said, son, um, I'm a family member. I live in Ohio and um, I haven't been to church in 25 years. And he said, Um, struck me. He said, if there were more churches that spoke about grief and questions and doubts the way that you guys did, uh, I'd go to that church in Iowa. And it struck me that I didn't feel like I had an answer for him. I just said, hey, we're, we're here together. We're with you. And I think that, for so many people, is what they're looking for and what they're needing. They're looking for somebody that's gonna be with them, that will suffer with them. And this path of being with people, of suffering with them, is not something that just Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. It's the path of Jesus. It's what he did for us. So I want to close with a passage uh, in the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah beautifully foretells about a suffering servant who would come. And he says this, he says, Indeed, who would ever believe it? Who would possibly accept what we've been told? Who has witnessed the awesome power and plan of the eternal in action? Out of emptiness, he came like a tender shoot from rock-hard ground. He didn't look like anything or any one of consequence. He had no physical beauty to attract our attention. So he was despised and forsaken of men. This man of suffering, grief's patient friend, As if he was a person to avoid, we looked the other way. He was despised, forsaken, and we took no notice of him. Yet it was our suffering that he carried, our pain and distress, our sick to the soulness. We just figured that God had rejected him, that God was the reason he hurt so badly, but he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. We have all wandered off like shepherdless sheep, scattered by our aimless striving and endless pursuits. The eternal one laid on him, this silent sufferer, the sins of us all. And so it's in Jesus' suffering, it's in his willingness to come and be with us that we ultimately find forgiveness and grace and restoration and hope and it's his invitation to us to be the same kind of people, to not feel like we have to show up and have all the answers, but to be the people who will say, I don't know, but I do know I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you, and we're gonna see this out together. Ecclesia, what would it look like for us to be those people in in our schools, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our homes? I believe that would absolutely transform and change the world. So would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you were willing to pursue us to come to this place, that you were willing to suffer on our behalf, and that you don't leave us or forsake us in our darkest times. And we thank you for this reminder, for this bread, which was broken, and for your body that it represents that was broken for us. And we ask that as we eat it today, that we would be reminded of how your body broken was our healing. And we thank you for this cup, for this juice and this wine, and for your blood that it represents that was poured out for us. And we ask that as we drink it today that you would fill us with your spirit. That you would make us courageous people. God, have your way in our midst today. And we pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ekthesiahouston.org.